Please open your Bibles to Luke 13, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 9, Luke 13. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 872. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the bin dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered them, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not... You can cut it down. May God bless to our understanding this word, this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the... Um, the clear utterance of the Lord Jesus. Uh, He does not uh, leave us guessing, but uh, aims his word right at our heart and our life. And so I pray that uh, his word would find the mark this morning. Lord, we we ask that you would bless not only the, the reading, but also the proclamation of Jesus Christ and his word. Amen. So you've probably heard the saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I think I've said it before. Um, Well, this saying came from a song called The Ground is Level, and it was written by a guy named Mark Lowry. And of course, the ground at the foot of the cross was not literally uh, level, Uh, The Bible tells us that the place where Jesus was crucified was on a hill. Uh, But the saying conveys the truth that no one is better or more deserving of salvation than anyone else. Uh, the, The rich person and the poor person are on equal footing before the cross Uh, There is no advantage for the religious person or the over against the atheist at the foot of the cross. The young and the old have equal standing. Uh, 
In other words, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Why is the ground level? Well, the ground is level because we are sinners. We all need the grace of God that is found only in Jesus Christ. There's no one that can push their way forward or stand up taller and be closer to the grace of God than another. Because we fall, we all fall infinitely short. We are sinners. Now, people from every age and culture have not understood that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. For instance, uh, many of you may remember the tsunami that, uh, that smashed into the coastline of Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and other places. Uh, it was the day after Christmas in 2004. More than 100,000 people died within a, 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 a few minutes uh, time span. Uh, millions of others lost their homes. And so the questions were started. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did they deserve it? Or what did they do to deserve it? Why didn't God do something to stop it? An unspeakable tragedy had happened in Jerusalem. We uh, see it here in our passage. A group of worshipers had come to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. They were a group of Galileans. And for some reason, uh, Pilate decided he was going to make an example of them. He killed them while they were offering their sacrifices. And then he took their blood and mixed it with the blood of the animals that were sacrificed to make it a complete sacrilege. Um, it would be like a group of terrorists uh, coming into church on a communion Sunday, shooting a bunch of worshipers, and then mingling our blood with the communion wine. It'd be horrible. And apparently the people thought that these Galileans, because this happened to them and it was so outrageous, they thought that maybe they were to blame, that maybe they were greater sinners than everybody else in the country since it happened to them and not to other people. And they made this assumption because they believed that only bad things happen to bad people. The people bringing the report to Jesus, they had this same theology and it was the same theology that Job's friends had. Remember Job? Uh, they said, all, this, all these bad things are happening to you, Job, because you're just a great big sinner. Even Jesus' own disciples had this same bad theology. Remember in John chapter 9, uh, they uh, came across a man who was blind from birth. And they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples are assuming that he was suffering because either his sin or his parents' sin. 
And so how does Jesus respond to this bad theology? Well, verses 1 through 3, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I want to side note, um, break away from the, the regularly uh, planned uh, programming, and because there's an opposite error that is uh, actually more common in our day. Anytime something bad happens to someone, uh, in our culture, we treat them as victims. And, of course, all victims are innocent. Therefore, what ends up happening is God's goodness is called into question. Why would God allow this to happen to them? And we put God at the bar of our judgment. And we turn things completely upside down. But Jesus says we are all sinners and that we must all, it's right there in verse 3, we must all likewise repent lest we perish. That's the end of the little bypass, little side note. Uh, now, sometimes people do suffer as a consequence of their actions. But even then, we don't know the full scope of what God's doing. Other times, God sends suffering into our lives for no reason that we can possibly ever understand. So he did this in Job's life. And this is a common experience for God's people. God might send suffering into, into our lives to help us to depend on him more, to ratchet down on him in faith. He might send suffering uh, into our lives for someone else to see how we uh, trust the Lord and be a witness to them. Uh, we don't know what God is doing at any given moment. When he sends suffering into our lives and we don't know why he's done it, we don't need to know why. We can trust God that he is good, that he is just, and that he loves us. The point is, we cannot judge our own or much less other spiritual state by the, by the amount of suffering or lack of suffering one may be experiencing. But haven't you done it before? So-and-so suffering. I wonder what kind of skeleton they have in their closet. Or the psalmist in Psalm 73, Lord, why are the, the rich prospering and I'm suffering? Well, we just don't know uh, who has ever been able to plumb the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That being said, do not miss Jesus' point in verse 3. In fact, it was such an important point that he made it twice. Uh, I'll read verses 3 through 5. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus says it in verse 3. He repeats it in verse 5. In other words, this is important. Make sure you don't miss it. Jesus is a uh, statement here assumes that we are all sinners. He assumes that we all need to repent. None of you, nor me, are accepted. Uh, and let me pause right there and ask you, have you ever repented before in your life? You say, repent? I don't even know what repentance is. Uh, well, it's important that we know what it is, because as Jesus said, verse 3, and again in verse 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus uses this word perish to speak of the final judgment. He's saying that because we are sinners, we are all accountable to the justice and wrath of God. You know, I've said a lot, and I've been all over the place, and I've tried to be quick because I'm looking a little bit at the clock. So I want to sum up the main points of this message real quickly. First, Jesus denies that the victims of tragedy are more evil than others. We are all sinners. Therefore, we all, the ground we stand on before the cross of Christ is level. Second, Jesus says that we all deserve punishment. We are all accountable to the justice and wrath of God. Uh, we had this uh, family in our church, um, and a lot of you won't know him because know, know this family because they've been away for a while. Uh, Manny and Kim Estrada, and Manny was one of the top scouts for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I would always ask Manny, how are you doing? Because I liked for him to give me the answer. And every week he'd say, Pastor, I'm always doing, uh, I'm better than I deserve. You know, that's a great answer. We all deserve the justice and wrath of God. Another little side note before I um, uh, continue on. There's, you know, there's only one person who has ever lived that did not deserve the wrath and justice of God. But you know what? He suffered the full and relentless justice and wrath of God in our place on the cross. The one person who did not deserve it. Because he knew no sin, but he became sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. God's righteous judgment and wrath was exercised to the fullest degree on our Lord Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the Father turned away from him, and as we learn in Isaiah 53, struck him in our place. The blow that he took was meant for us because we deserved it. 
We are accountable to the justice and wrath of God, but Jesus Christ stepped in and stepped in as our substitute and took the blow. Jesus bore it, bore the wrath of God in your place on the cross. And so that ends that little side note. It ought to be the central note of this sermon. But uh, keeping on with the uh, text, the third thing that Jesus is teaching us here in verses three through or one through five is how we should respond to tragedy. How should we respond when a tragedy happens? We should respond with repentance. When we see some tragedy on the news or some friend or family member or even some tragedy befalls us, it should be an opportunity for self-reflection. Earthly tragedies are God's caution lights to us. And these caution lights are blinking off and on. And they're telling us that we should remember that life is short, that life is uncertain, that tragedies do happen, that you are not guaranteed tomorrow or even your next hour. And so we should be asking ourselves when we see some tragedy befall, am I ready to die? Do I realize my vulnerability before the justice and holiness of God? Am I ready to stand before him? Have I repented? Do I even know what repentance means? Trans, um, or, or transitioning to verses 6 through 9. Jesus is seeking our repentance. That's the point of verses 6 through 9. Jesus is telling us, repent, lest you all likewise perish. Verses 6 to 9 is a parable that is helping us, or or is is Jesus seeking uh, repentance. And Jesus uses the parable of, uh, or uh, the figure of a, a fig tree in the parable, because throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's fig tree. Uh, in the Old Testament, it talks about God planting Israel as a choice fig tree. The fig tree owner, therefore, is God. And the vine dresser is our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fruit that the owner is looking for is repentance. The problem is that the people of Israel were not repenting. Their whole history is one failure of repentance. You know, you read through the book of Exodus and Numbers and, and um, Deuteronomy, and you're saying, okay, Israel, you can do it. You can repent. You can follow God. You can trust God. He's right there with the, the column of, of smoke and fire, right there leading you through the wilderness. Come on, Israel. You can do it. You can trust in him. And invariably, God says, go right and they go left. Their whole history was a failure to repent. The book of Judges, one failure after another. The book of Kings, 
One king turned from following God to follow uh, idols. And even the, the, the greatest king, King David, ended up being a murderer and an adulterer. All the prophets were calling out for Israel to repent. You could read Isaiah chapter 1 as Isaiah is calling for Israel to repent, and they would not. God had cultivated Israel for repentance, and he had done it for centuries. And so he had every right to expect them to bear good fruit. He had given them every spiritual advantage. He had given them the word of God. He gave them the promise of the covenants. He gave them the sacrifices of atonement. He went with his people. And finally, he sent his own beloved son. And the Lord Jesus walked among them. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He preached to them about the grace of God. He did miracles in their presence. And what did they do? You're only doing that by the hand of Satan. They rejected him. They would not repent. You know, we live on the other side of the resurrection of Christ. We know the whole story. We might not know everything about the end, but we basically know the whole story. We know all about God's grace. We know that he so loved sinners that he sent his son. We also know that he sent his Holy Spirit um, In fact, we have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made our heart his home. And the Holy Spirit is at work in each and every one of you who belong to Jesus. He's working in you to produce the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. These are fruits that should be hanging off the branches of your life. And we're connected to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true vine. We are the branches. You know, we are nourished directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of life, the fountain of living water is living inside us. Therefore, we ought to bear fruit for God. We should be growing in godliness. We should be gaining ground in our struggle against sin. In Colossians 1.10, the Apostle Paul said, uh, he, he told the Colossians and tells us as well, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And Jesus tells this parable, in verses 6 through 9, as a warning for fruitless souls. Listen to this passage, this parable. And Jesus told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, 
let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if I should bear fruit next year, or then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This parable is a warning for fruitless souls. God is examining you for fruit. Tim, uh, in, the, uh, in the children's sermon, God knows whether we're bearing fruit or not. We can't hide it. We can't staple on some, uh, some plastic fruit from, from wherever the, the uh, little uh, place my wife likes to go shop. Um, where you buy the, the uh, you know, the fake, fake fruit that you can put in the bowls and whatever. Um, you, know, you know, we need to be asking, am I bearing fruit? Is my family bearing fruit? If there's no fruit, what does God say he's going to do? Again, verse 7. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this tree. I find none. Cut it down. You know, he's going to whack it down if he finds no fruit. Uh, It's just taking up space. The owner needs to to cut it down and make room for the fig tree. I said whack it down. I'm from Georgia. Houston uh, with the great, beautiful Georgia uh, accent. And so um, that's what we do. Even if we use a a chainsaw on a tree, we're whacking it down in Georgia. You know, we have this yellow trumpet tree in our yard. And most of you have seen it. You've been to our house. And it it blooms these beautiful uh, yellow uh, petals, I guess, uh, on them. Well, you know what? These last several years, they're blooming less and less. And Elaine's been telling us, the tree's dying. Mandy keeps saying, give it one more year. And so finally we said, we're giving it till May. If there is no blooms on this tree, we're whacking it down. It's April 18th. There's not one leaf on that tree, not one bloom, not one sign of life. Its days are numbered. I've already been researching what kind of tree I'm going to plant in the place. Uh, All the focus had been on Israel for all the previous centuries, but they're unfruitful. And so what God is saying is he's going to remove Israel to make room for the nations or to make room for the Gentiles to become the central focus. In Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus was talking to the chief priest and the Pharisees. And listen to what he told them. He says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruits. Israel is just taking up space taking up um, a place where a fruitful, new, strong tree could grow. And we could move it on down to our individual uh, plight as well. If you were a fruitless Christian, you should take these, these words to heart. But there's hope. 
Because there's this vine dresser. This very patient and merciful vine dresser. Verse 8. And he answered him, Sir, this is the vine dresser speaking. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. Who's the vine dresser in this parable? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming looking for fruit. And he's not just passively standing by. He's going to take the spade to the roots. He's going to dig up and loosen the ground around the tree so that the roots might have some, some new nutrients and more oxygen or whatever it takes to, to cause the tree to maybe begin to flourish. Not only that, he's going to add some fertilizer or some manure into the, into the soil and try and enrich. He's, he's going to do everything possible to see this poor fruitless uh, tree to begin to bear fruit. He's, you know, when I go and, and buy shrubs, uh, I, I take the little shrubs and they have the little plastic, um, uh, in, it's in the, the root balls in the, the little plastic container, and I lay the shrub over on its side and I take the, 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 uh, the shovel, and I began to whack on it. Boom, boom, turn it over. Boom, boom, and I'm loosening the soil. And then I, I take the root ball out, and I start digging at the roots a little bit so, so they'll spread out because they've been contained in this, in this uh, little plastic container for however many months. And I want the, the shrub to grow. I want the shrub to thrive. I want to give it every opportunity to to do what I hope it will do. I spread a little fertilizer in it. Sometimes I'll go and buy some black cow manure and, and mix it in with the soil. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. He wants to, to see fruit uh, in our lives. You know, it's not pleasant uh, for the, the plant to be to be uh, beaten on with a shovel, to take the, the, the end of the shovel and kind of dig at the roots. It's a little painful, not pleasant. But Jesus intends to see good fruit being produced in you. He might bring suffering. He might bring tragedy. He may bring hardship like you have never uh, expected. But he intends to bring good fruit in your life. And the manure, well, that might be likened to the fertilizing effect of the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. Feed yourself with the fertilizer of God's Word. Attend a Bible study. Find an accountability partner and pray. Pray, pray, pray. Because we are weak and helpless. Romans chapter 7. We need God's help. The flesh is strong. The flesh is weak. But the Spirit of God, is He who is in you, is greater than He who is in the world. You know... I, as a pastor, get to talk to many people, and frankly, I have my own experience 
where you're trying to repent and you just quite can't get across the finish line. You know, that's one of the things that I I so dislike about the invitation system uh, in some churches, some denominations. You know, you have the invitation system, the the pastor comes forward, you sing however many stanzas of Just As I Am, you come and pray the prayer, and... um, and uh, the, the pastor tells you, well, you've just become a Christian. Don't doubt it. Uh, Satan will try and tell you that, uh, you're not a Christ- or that you're not a Christian. And you've got your little card to get into heaven. You know, I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I did that in 10th grade. And God, for two and a half years, tried to tell me I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't listening because I had prayed the prayer. I had walked the aisle. And the the invitation system uh, has a sense with it of easy believism. And so there's also, I think, an incomplete understanding of repentance. You know, there's a partial repentance that, you know, I've, I've gone down this path and realized later i wasn't i wasn't uh i wasn't persevering because i was aiming at a partial repentance what do i mean by partial repentance well repentance according to the bible first of all sorrow for sin you saw that in the confession of sin earlier secondly it's a turning away from sin and we think once i've turned away from sin i'm free from the sin problem is There's a third step. It's a turning to God in obedience that takes the opposite direction than the sin that we were committing. I think a lot of us are real good at, number one, sorrowing for our sin. You know, sin brings sadness. Turning away from our sin because we hate it, but then the follow-through of turning to God. Um... And finding an accountability partner, reading the scriptures, persevering in prayer and asking God for help. And we go maybe one week, everything seems to be going okay, and then we lose our focus and we're falling right back into where we were. James chapter 2, verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So when I'm not seeing uh, real life change when I'm repenting, I need to make sure that I'm not persisting in my love for sin despite my outward hatred for my sin. Repentance takes place at the heart level. Okay? It absolutely takes place at the heart level. Your heart has to change. But every time, invariably, it must work its way out into the life. And again, prayer is vital. If you find yourself stuck in um, an incomplete repentance, it's not repentance. Jesus says, repent, lest you likewise perish. But our Lord Jesus also 
does everything necessary by his death on the cross, by his resurrection from the grave, by his sending his spirit into our life, by his word that is at work within us. He will change us. Christ is sufficient. He will help us persist in our follow-through. He's looking for fruit. And if you belong to him, he will produce it. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, this is a, uh, a tough passage. We don't hear about repentance in our day and age a whole lot. But our Lord Jesus was very bold and uh, clear on the subject. Lord, make us a repenting people as we trust in our Lord Jesus, knowing that he is at work within us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Oh Lord, I pray that as we are your workmanship, that you would work your good works in us that you have ordained that we should produce. We ask in your name. Amen.